Hello, welcome to Uppity Women. This is Stephanie Harris, your host. And today's guest is Susie Parker of Little Rock, Arkansas. She is a journalist and an author, a teacher. Uh, You'll hear more about that toward the end of the conversation. And speaking of which, at the end of the conversation, I cut some of it out. But when I talk about the storytelling part, we had been discussing a different project I'm working on um, about Billie Jean Letterman and Texarkana. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, We'll talk about that in a future episode. But in the meantime, you can find Susie all over the place. If you go to Amazon to her author page, you'll see the different books and writings, including Sex in the South, Unbuckling the Bible Belt, Echo Ellis, Adventures of a Girl Reporter. Then she's got some erotica writing, Trumping and Drinking, 100 Cocktails for Donald Trump's First 100 Days, all kinds of different things. So check it out and enjoy the show. All right. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I just finished reading your bio, and we're going to need hours. <laughs> that was just like, I just kind of combined two bios. I was like, I don't know what she really wants to talk about. I'll just throw all it all in there. All of it. Oh, my God. Well, we'll, we'll probably have to have multiple uh, conversations. But So I don't even know where to begin. I first heard of you, and I told you this in a message, that I was married to Drew Harris, who is from Jonesboro, and he went to ASU and got a communications or journalism degree. And I remember it must have been your Sex in the South book that came out because he and I actually got divorced in early 2004. Okay, and that came out in 2003. Okay, so I know I was still with Drew because that's how I found out that you all went to school together. And I, I just remember thinking... That's so cool. <laughs> She's in the South. You know, because I, I moved here, well, I have a kind of a convoluted history, but um, I actually graduated from Central High in 89. So I went here to school here for one year, and then I immediately moved to New York. I had no plans to come back to Arkansas. Well, in 97, I came back to Arkansas, and I was just going to finish school and leave again. My biological dad is here, so that's my connection. And, yeah, um, I'm leaving because my dog is going to go haywire, and okay. I'm going to another room. <laughs> okay. Uh, He's going to go crazy. Yeah, sound is important. So I, I never planned to stay in Arkansas because I'm not religious, I'm liberal, I'm a feminist. I'm all of those things that don't really seem to fit into the South. That's why I remember hearing about you and thinking, huh, we would probably get along well. Yes, because I don't belong here either, although I'm born and raised here. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your background. So you're from okay. Arkansas. Yes, I was born in Palm Bluff, so South Arkansas. And then you moved to the more liberal uh, bastion of Pope County in Russellville. I did. I went even uh, more conservative <laughs> to, to, uh, to Pope County, to Russellville, to high school. We must be around the same age. I'm 47. How old are you? I'm 49. Okay, yeah, so I'm about to be 48. So what was it like growing up in Pine Bluff and then in Russellville? Well, growing up in Pine Bluff was very, very old South. Uh, you know, you had cotillion, you did the, uh, you went to the country club, girls were very much into beauty pageants. I wasn't into any of that. I tried a beauty pageant once when I was a little girl. So not for me. I did cotillion for a little bit. Didn't like that either. So it was very, it was very old South. But women had a role Girls grew up and got married. You went to college to find an MRS degree. So in the 70s and 80s, it was still, it was very much like we were living in the 1950s. Although my parents were very liberal and progressive. So I had a different upbringing than everybody else around me. They were older. My parents were older than all my other friends' parents. And they just, they really believed in an education. 
so that was drilled into me. And while my friends were being, you know, groomed to get married, I was being groomed to be focused on my career. And then I moved to Russellville, and that was kind of a different experience. It was less southern because, you know, you're kind of on the on the foothills of the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. So it was a little – it was a different experience altogether. I mean, girls were still expected to get married. It was more conservative, I think, church-wise. It seemed like more people were more all about going to church there mm. than in Palm Bluff for so some less reason. About, less about the pomp and circumstance and more about the Bible Belt. Yes, it was more very much like the – I went to a Southern Baptist church in Palm Bluff, and it was actually more Methodist. It, we had to see, mm. it was pretty – it wasn't uber conservative or anything. You just went to church and prayed, and that was it. You know, mm. it wasn't this kind of you're going – you're damned to hell every Sunday. And then – my parents and I started going to a Baptist church in Russellville, and we went, and we were like, what is this church? It was completely different than the church I had, we had been going to in Palm Bluff. Very conservative, very much this fire and brimstone, you know, damn to hell thing. And mm-hmm. so my parents were like, I don't, I don't think this is the church for us. Did you stop going there? We did. Well, we went periodically, but we did not get into it. And eventually, we became Methodist. <laughs> it yeah. seems more like what we were used to. Right. So what did your parents do? Well, my dad was self-employed. He was a business owner and an accountant, and he traveled a lot. He went, um, he traveled all over the country, especially in the Midwest, Chicago and Milwaukee. His expertise was getting companies out of trouble that were on the brink of bankruptcy. So he could kind of knew how to... Um, help you with your tax problems, how to get you back on track to make money. And then my mom was a bookkeeper until I was born, and then she was a stay-at-home mom. And you're an only child? I'm an only child. Why do you think uh, you describe them as liberal? Do you mean that in the sort of current definition of liberal? Yes. My My parents are me. Why do you think that they, growing up in Arkansas, were not more conservative. Like, where do, where do you think mm-hmm. that came from? I think it came from, well, they traveled a lot before I was born. They were married 13 years before they had me, and they, they lived in California for a while in the 50s. My dad was a Korean War veteran, and then in the 60s, they traveled all over, and they, they traveled throughout the South, and my dad had a lot of African-American friends, and he was never, ever racist. I mean, he just didn't, he didn't care. I mean, he didn't care what color you were. And I, I know this is instilled in me at a very young age, like color doesn't matter. If somebody's a good person, they're a good person. So they had traveled all over, and they had all these friends from different walks of life. Early on, my dad worked for um, a, man, a Jewish man. They were just really exposed to a lot of worldly things, living in a lot of cultures, living in California for a while and then traveling. I think that was it. I think getting out of the South and just exposing themselves kind of instilled something in them that other people who just stay stagnant and didn't explore and have adventures didn't get. Mm -hmm. Right. Twain has that quote, something about travel. Well, I I can't remember exactly what it is, but it extinguishes prejudice, basically. Yeah. So my dad traveled a lot to Chicago, to the north. And so, you know, they were more progressive and they were always democratic and they were always liberal. I mean, they were really, they never switched. It was liberal from the get go, from the Mm -hmm. time I was born. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I would just remember, yes, I mean, my mom was a huge Carter supporter 
and her family, I mean, she had a brother who was very pro-Reagan, and my mom was very pro-Carter, and one of the biggest fights they ever got into was about Carter and Reagan, and I, this was like 1980. I clearly remember it, and um, you just couldn't sway my mom. She was she was pro-choice. She was a huge Obama fan, more than more than Hillary. She she rooted for Obama in, in, um, from the get-go, but she, from... When she saw him speak in 04 at the Democratic National Convention on TV, she said he's going to be our next president, and he was. He, he was in Little Rock, too, when Bibi was running. Yes, 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 and she didn't get to go see him. Yeah, but, I, yeah. I was still calling him Obak Barama. <laughs> I could not remember his name, but I'd heard that there was this up-and-coming guy, and I was like, well, I should probably go see this Obakarama guy. And unfortunately, there was also a, a Razorback going on, game going on in Little Rock that day, and so it was a small crowd, and I've always regretted that because I know there are a lot of supporters of his here. But um, Okay, so did you always have a sense that you didn't really fit into Arkansas, or is that something yes. that you felt later? Tell me about that. No, from the get, from from the time I was very small, I just felt like I didn't belong here. And I think that has to do with, from the time I was about three or four, my dad and mom, that's when my dad was traveling a lot to Chicago on business. And I went with them. They always took me on their business trip. And so I would go to Chicago, and I was little, like, three or four years old. And I had a fascination as a kid with bars, not so much the drinking, but just the decor and all the bottles and the glamour. And this was in the 70s when bars were really swanky. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not talking like a pizza D Botwater thing. We're talking like really fancy bars. And so a lot of times my dad would have these business meetings in the bars and I would go with them. They would get permission for me to go into these bars and I would just sit there and have a Shirley Temple. But I think I was exposed like my parents had traveled, I think I was exposed to these different worlds. So I just knew I didn't really quite fit in here because I was doing things that other kids here might weren't doing. And I was seeing that, you know, there were places like Chicago and St. Louis and and, uh, Dallas at a really very young age. And I just thought, oh, I just aligned myself more with that world early on. And definitely by middle school, I knew I did not belong here. And after and after a series of like I don't know a bad beauty pageant dance classes cotillion right yeah so did you decide you wanted to get out and stay out or did you always want to stay here I'm uh, yes in seventh grade around seventh grade I started saying I'm getting out of here I'm going then I got into Duran Duran the 80s band obsessively so and they were based in you know they're from London and they made these glamorous videos all over the world and I said that's what I'm going to do I want to live someplace you know I want to live someplace else in seventh grade I decided I wanted to be a journalist I saw Barbara Walters on television she made someone cry during an interview and I told my parents that's what I want to do and I want to travel the world doing this and not live here and also, then when I got into Duran Duran and they were living this glamorous rock star life, of course, I thought I was going to marry Simon LeBon and be a rock star, you know, wife. That was the only time I really thought too much about marriage was I'm going to sure. marry Simon LeBon. So I had a plan to get out of here. And then, then what happened was Bill Clinton's career 
mirrored when I was in college, graduating college, and he became president. And so it was kind of lucrative for me to stay here as a journalist instead of leave. And I had opportunities to go to D.C., and I passed them up because D.C. just didn't seem like where I really wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And that's where the job opportunities were for me. And I, know I had friends that lived in D.C., and I thought, I don't, I don't think D.C. is it. Now, of course, I could have used D.C. as, as a springboard, right. but somehow I just kept staying in Arkansas. And then my parents got older, and and then I felt kind of obligated to to stay and take care of them. And your mom passed away last year, right? Yeah, she passed away in 2017. What about your dad? He passed away in 2009. So it's been a while, yeah. Did your parents encourage you to, you know, marry Simon LeBon or run off to (laughs) wherever? I mean, were they just kind of letting you do your thing, or did they have some thoughts? No, they they pretty well... um, well, I was I had planned to go to college in Memphis. Um, to I was going to go get my journalism degree in Memphis, and at, that's when it was the University of Memphis. And oh no, it was Memphis State, I think. And my mom got this packet of information just a few, maybe a couple months. It was middle of summer before I was supposed to go, and it was all about um, date rape on campus and rates in general in Memphis, and the rates were very, very high. And my mom said, there is no way you are going to Memphis. They weren't big on Memphis anyway, and they said no. That was the only time they really flat out said, you're not going to do something. This is dangerous. We're mm-hmm. we're not going to, you know, help you go to this city that has all this crime. And so they had moved at that point to BB, and ASU BB was right around the corner. And my dad said, you can go there for a couple of years, get your basics out of the way, and then we'll figure out where you want to go after that. And that was the only time they actually told me, you're not going somewhere. So I ended up at ASU BB, and then this strange twist of events happened. Because I had had all this journalism background in high school, because Russellville had an excellent journalism, high school journalism program, I became at ASU BB my first semester that the newspaper editor there, and I became the youngest newspaper editor in the state. So that put me on this journalism path, and I landed an interview with Bill Clinton. My whole life is tethered curiously to the Clintons. So I get this interview with the Clintons, and that kind of set me on this path, this journalism path with the Clintons. And so then I went to ASU because I landed a scholarship. And then I was going to go to Mississippi. I was going to go to Oxford and get my master's in Southern Studies. My dad, ever the practical one, he wanted me to go to law school. I didn't, I didn't want to go to law school. Mm-hmm. And so he says, what would you do with a degree in Southern Studies when you are Southern and you know everything about the South? Good point. And I said, well, I guess I'll go get my degree at UALR. So I went and got my master's in journalism at UALR, and it tied to Clinton winning the election for president, and then I started covering him. <laughs> so you were you were still in school when he ran in 92? Is that right? 90, yeah, I graduated from ASU Jonesboro in December of 91 and entered journalism school, graduate school in 90, summer of 92, and then he won that fall. Okay, and we're, when were you at the Democrat Gazette? I worked there from 1993 to 96. So you were basically on the Clinton beat. Well, not at the Democrat Gazette. I was on the OBIT beat. I got a job there as an intern through the UALR journalism department. And I wanted to cover Clinton, but they said I was too young. And this one editor told me that I couldn't cover politics because I was female. 
Now, they had female reporters there, so that made no sense, but he flat out said, you can't cover politics because you're a female. And I said, that's sexist. I can't believe, you know, I can't cover politics because I'm female. There's two political reporters now covering this. And they said, yes, but they've worked their way up. And I said, but this is, I'm, I think I'm kind of good at this. So they didn't like it that I kind of defied or questioned, questioned that decision and mm-hmm. questioned this editor, this older editor that was completely from another generation. And so to teach me a lesson, they put me in the high probe. They moved me from the obit desk, which I had turned these obits into headline obits, the ones that they still run. It was more of a column back then because I I created it into a column. Mm -hmm. But um, they moved me into the high profile section and made me cover weddings and write about flowers and parties Mm -hmm. to teach me a lesson because I guess they figured that's where bad girls should go to get their Southern, their dose of Southern bellism. Yeah, the bona fides. Yes, I had to go to the country club and cover all these parties, and I lasted five months in there, five months at high profile. I hated it. I loathed it. Everything about it. Like my growing up in Palm Bluff, you know, the weddings, the flowers, having to learn wedding dresses and necklines. And as I said, I did not go to journalism school for this. Mm -hmm. And so I quit. Well, I don't think it's changed a whole lot. No, no, it has not. No, it has not changed. (laughs) No, not from what I hear. Yeah, but that's for another conversation. Um, so were you basically just freelancing for all these publications? Yeah, that's what I've done for the last 20 years. All right. And how less. are you, how do you market yourself? How do you get these gigs? I mean, what, because we're talking back before Internet. Yeah, I was at the very beginning of email when I started in 1997 because um, I worked briefly at August House Publishing for about a year and a half editing books when I left the Democrat Gazette. And that wasn't. It wasn't a bad job. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to cover, you know, politics mm-hmm. and and write. I didn't want to really edit other people's stuff. And so um, I quit that and decided I was going to freelance. And my parents were completely supportive of me because my, my dad was, you know, self, self-employed self his whole life. So he was fine with me trying this, giving it a shot. And so email, the internet was there and email was there. And so what I did was I just started, I had a network. I had a couple of friends, one that worked for the New York Times Magazine and one that um, wrote for The Economist and U.S. News. And those two guys got me connections with those publications. And um, I started pitching stories on the Clintons. And because I was based here, and this was at the begin, this was still in the middle of Whitewater, and right before Monica Lewinsky. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of networked, and I would send out blind um, queries to editor after editor all over the world, all over the United States, Canada, and different outlets in in Europe, especially London. So that's how I did it, and mm-hmm. I just started landing stories. <laughs> One story kind of led to another story led to another story. And what is your relationship with the Clintons? Is it strictly professional? It's totally professional. Totally professional. Yes. It's a, it's a love hate. When I, when I write something good about the Clintons, this is, you know, obviously before Hillary lost and the Clintons were really in political office, you know, or running for political office. Um, It was, if I wrote something great, they loved me. And if I wrote something bad, they hated me and I would get some nasty email. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's strictly professional. So when when Lewinsky happened, I'll tell you, let me jump forward a little bit. I've been, 
struggling with Me Too and Bill Clinton and Lewinsky and mm. power dynamics. And I mean, I, I, I don't know how I feel about it, honestly. I mean, I, I think, okay, let me, let me just say this. So I listened to, you know, Monica Lewinsky, Lewinsky talk and, you know, she's kind of gone from, Hey, this was my choice to now. Yeah. I can understand that there was this power dynamic and it was, you know, I don't, I don't think she says it was abusive or anything like that, but, um, and I've never really been that upset about his relationship with her. And I don't No, I have not he, either. I don't think he assaulted her or anything like that. Now I know if I'd been at some 19 year old, I'd have done the same thing. I mean, I, I don't see how you can resist. But then there's the Juanita Broderick thing. I mean, it's, you know, so I just don't know where I'm at on that. I, I feel like he's gotten uh, a pass on some things that he wouldn't if it happened today. Yes, I don't think he would have, uh, yes, I, don't, I think we've kind of, I think we have um, at least moved in that direction where if this happened today, but I say that, I mean, yes, I don't think he would have gotten by with it, but then we have Trump in office who's done all sorts of things and said horrible things about women. Really yeah, horrible things. Trump is clearly getting away with everything yeah. he would have jailed anyone else for. That's right. So it's kind of a weird, twisty, upside-down world. Like, I don't think Clinton would have gotten by with it all now, I don't think. But then Trump gets by with saying such horrible things and treating people so horribly, male and female, reporters, you name it. So it it is kind of weird. And I've always had a weird thing about the Monica Lewinsky um scandal as well because mm-hmm. even as I was covering it I kind of thought well I mean she's a grown woman I mean if she had been a child it may have been a different story mm-hmm. but I don't think she went in it completely innocent like oh I didn't know what I was doing I mean I think you know I think she had a crush on him right an older man you know in power I think she had a crush and it just kind of went from there mm-hmm. and he had a weakness for women Kind of like a perfect storm, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that if if uh, infidelity is going to be a deal breaker, then we're going to probably have to clean the slate and start over. <laughs> I mean, I, to me, it's not. I mean, obviously, I don't want my husband to cheat on me, and I don't want to cheat on him. You know, but that's a personal issue between us, and and I don't think that it necessarily. Human beings are complicated. I will just put it that way. Yes, and, I agree with that. Yes, I agree with that. And I think that the Bill and Hillary relationship is very complicated and always has been, maybe more so than the average, you know, there's a political mm-hmm. marriage as well. And she never really fit into the South either. Right. And so, and then you throw in someone like a Jennifer Flowers or a Monica, and yes, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. But I've never thought that Monica should just get by with it being like, oh, she was abused by Bill Clinton in some way. Yes. Was there a power dynamic? Yes. Is there always usually a power dynamic in a relationship of whatever kind? Yes, usually. Mm -hmm. And then I just think, I think, I think she was really into him. And then Ken Starr knew, knew this and could set it up to have the chips fall where they may for Clinton. Yes, and if you have not listened to it, uh, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to tell you what it is. But there's a podcast about that whole thing, and, and the reporter talked to Linda Tripp, and boy, is it interesting. Oh yes, I haven't listened to that. I need to listen. You do need yeah, to. Yeah, because Linda Linda Tripp is a, is a main component of all of this. Well, and she was a she was a, a basically a 
conservative operative who hated the Clintons. That's right. And, and then Monica confided in her. Yes. And that's where I think Monica was giddy because Bill Clinton wanted her. She crushed on him or that whole dynamic there. And then, yes, Linda Tripp right. used it. Mm-hmm. Right. And she'll say, she says in this interview at one point, you know, well, I just, I mean, I just thought of it, you know, well, what if, what if she were my daughter? Well, you wouldn't make all this public <laughs> because what I, the only thing I don't like about all of that is how we as a culture treated Monica Lewinsky. She was just a child, really. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if she, if Linda Tripp claims to have cared about her, she would not have put her through that because she That's didn't right. care about Monica. She cared about she cared about taking down the Clintons. That's that, exactly it. That, to me, is the, the horror of that story. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah you, you should listen to that podcast. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and it's interesting to hear it from Tripp's perspective, uh, which, of course, I call bullshit on almost all of it. But it's not bullshit. It's how she felt. But, you know, her, her motives are, are not pure. But I, don't, I never thought they were. So, um, okay, I'm sorry. I got off on a little bit of a tangent there. That's okay. Uh, it happens. <laughs> That's how I ended up staying in Arkansas. I got off on a tangent with the Clintons, and here I am. <laughs> right. Uh, I guess let's get to, I want to talk about your Sex in the South book. And how did that come about? Is 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 Sex in the South something you'd always wanted to cover? Because when I think about it in lots of different contexts, you know, the way women are supposed to act and behave, um, the, you know, not teaching sex ed in schools. I mean, just all of the things. Yeah, how did I end up with that? Well, I think it was growing up in Palm Bluff. You know, it was that kind of country club. You know, I heard stories. I mean, my my parent, you know, my parents would talk, and they didn't really shelter me from stuff. You know, it wasn't like like if someone was having an affair with someone, they may say so and so and so and so is having an affair. I, it was maybe not when I was a child, but you know, as I got into you know middle school, teenage years, they just didn't shelter me from too much of this. They always treat me like a little adult. So growing up in, in Palm Bluff, I think I just kind of heard these stories of, you know, people having affairs or, you know, what you see isn't what you get. And and it kind of fascinated me. And then in my junior high, high school years, I read a lot of Jackie Collins. I read all those kind of romances that, like, Jackie Collins and um, Valley of the Dolls and Lace was one of the ones I read, um, these kind of steamy, hot 80s novels. And I always said, I want to write a novel like Jackie Collins. I want to write those kind of books. So I wanted to be a journalist, and then I wanted to write these hot, steamy books. Um, and that never really left me. I always That's what I always wanted to do. And then in the late 90s, in 1997, a friend of mine told me about these sex toy parties that everybody was going to. Mm-hmm. And I had not heard about them. But, you know, you, you would go and they it was a party and this woman would come and sh- show you sex toys and then you would buy sex toys and take them home to your, you know, and have live happily ever after with your husband. And so I thought, what is this? And my friend said, oh, it's like Tupperware parties. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got to go see one of these because, re- you know, as a journalist, I'm always curious about everything. So I went to one, and I pitched the story to this online um, magazine called Nerve that a friend of mine out of Little Rock had moved to New York. He was actually from the East Coast, and he had started this uh, website called Nerve that was really erotica, sex, dating kind of stories. Mm-hmm. And um, 
so I pitched this this, tour, this story to him, and he was fascinated that these Southern women were having these parties buying sex toys. He had never heard because you know on back then, especially on the on the coast, on east or west coast, you know you would just go to a sex toy shop or a lingerie shop and buy what you wanted, right. but not here. And so, and, you, and this is before have, you didn't have to wear a disguise. That's right. You yeah. just go. And, you know, and this was before Cupid's was all over town or Seductions or any of those. The only place you could go was either mail order at or on 65th Street. There was like a Cupid's out there. That was it. And, you know, that was kind of like a, a sketchy part of town. So I went to one of these parties out in Saline County on a Wednesday night. And I, I get there and all these women are drinking wine, getting drunk. And this one woman says to me, giggling, Oh, our husbands don't know that we're here tonight. And I said, oh, where do they think you are? And she said, Bible study. And right then I knew I had a whole book because I thought, okay, if they're doing this on Wednesday night, what's happening on Saturday night before Sunday morning? And what's happening when the preacher's not looking? And, and this whole idea just came to me sitting there in Saline County. Wow. In the middle of nowhere. And so I wrote that story, and then I started researching weird things in the South, fetishes, strip clubs, you name it. I was like asking my guy friends, you know, what about this or what about that? And and my girlfriend's different things. And people would start telling me stuff. And then in 2001, I wrote this story about Niagara, the blue love potion. And that kind of set my whole world on fire with the rest of the, the rest of my life with this story I wrote about that. Love potion. Is that the one? Because I got in trouble for that. Yes. Is that the one that they wouldn't let you on Arkansas Week? That's right. Okay. So tell yeah, me they about said that. I was. They t- well, I wrote this story about Niagara. This is the love, the blue love potion that all these women in Little Rock were buying out of a chocolate store out in West Little Rock. That's no longer there. And this woman who was selling it had found, had gone to market and discovered this blue energy drink from Sweden that had aphrodisiac powers. And women were just lining up to buy this stuff. And the same friend that told me about the the tougher sex, the sex toy parties, um, told me about this love potion. And I said, oh, my God, what is this? So I go over to this chocolate coffee store. They she sold coffee and chocolate. And there were women lined up out the door to get this stuff. So I wrote a story about it, one for The Economist, because I, I wrote a lot for The Economist back then. And um, so I had written, I wrote a story for The Economist, and then I wrote another one for Nerve that was a racy first-person account of me drinking this love potion and testing it out with my boyfriend. I figured this was my one shot to be like Jackie Collins. That was in my head. Oh, I can be like Jackie Collins. And I also assumed that not everybody would read it in Little Rock. How many people could even find this story? You know, it was really before the days of Google. was really, you know, I thought you'd really have to know that story's out there to find it. So it, it floated out there for two or three weeks on the website, and not very many people read it, I guess, or people in Little Rock didn't read it. And then Julia Roberts and Adam Sandler were interested in optioning it, especially Julia Roberts, because she had just won the Academy Award for Erin Brockovich. So she was the biggest movie star in the world. Mm-hmm. And she contacted Nerve. She was trying to option tons of stuff. It was just, I guess tax right off. She was just trying to accumulate stuff for production, possible production. But the not, she knew somebody that, that was connected to Nerve, and she optioned my um, 
story, which Sandra Bullock was also interested in it. And to one-up Sandra Bullock, I guess, Julia Roberts leaked it to, or somebody connected to Julia Roberts, leaked it to Variety that she was auctioning this Southern love potion story. And it made the news. It, it, went, it went viral. And I got a call at like 7 in the morning from New York, from Nerve, saying, beware, you know, be prepared. The story's everywhere. And my name was attached to it. And I said, oh, my God. And then it wasn't two or three hours later that AETN called me and told me they wouldn't need me on there this that week because I had written about sex. But what's ironic about all that is that I was going on to AETN to Arkansas week that week to talk about a senator who was having an affair with his in, for, with a staffer. Oh, my God. And so I was supposed to go on this show and talk about this Republican senator who wanted Clinton impeached, who was having an affair with a staffer. So I was supposed to dissect his sex loss, but then when I heard about sex, I got in trouble. Right. And I'm assuming they meant that ban was for, for loss because they've never invited me back. How often had you been appearing on it? Oh, I was on it like at least a couple times a month. Wow. At least once a month and usually twice a month. I mean, what's a pretty frequent? It was definitely more than once. It was about every other week, every three weeks I was on. Were you expecting that kind of pushback? No. No, I was shocked. I mean, that's when I really realized there was this double standard, like, you know, that they did not. I mean, there were editorials written, including in the Arkansas Times, that, you know, oh, some things are kept in the bedroom, Susie. That was that was a line in the in the editorial in the Arkansas Times. Wow. Um, that that they just did not women, want women to feel powerful sexually and to own their sexuality. It's, I, I was shocked by it. I was actually, my conservative friends were a little more supportive than my liberal friends. It was a very strange time. Was it because the more conservative friends were interested in kind of personal freedoms or what do you think, why do you think they were more supportive? Yeah, yeah, I think they were a little more into personal freedom. I think that they thought you should be, it, it was interesting, like, you should be able to write about this, kind of more about the First Amendment, which I know we're not really in that world anymore. But, um, you know, they felt like, I know that I had one tell me, if I want, if I have the right to carry a gun, you have a right to write what you want. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting that, you know, the Arkansas Times and other kind of more liberal writers went after me so hard. It was, I think it was very much of older white male syndrome. Right. Right, which knows no party. That's right. That knows no that knows no party. That's correct. So, um, you know, sex and the oppression of us uh, as women in in owning our sexuality and using it the way we want to. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming that's just been going on since the beginning of time. And I have some feelings about why that's dangerous. Do you think of it as a, something that's dangerous? I guess what I mean is when we're not allowed to talk about sex or sexuality, how our bodies work, we can be abused as children. Um, and it's something that's definitely pushed under the rug. Uh, obviously, we see with all the churches and their sex scandals, um, it's dangerous not to talk about sex openly, in my opinion, because these things can happen because we're I grew- so shy about talking about it. Yes, and I think that still, you know, women should you know it's a control thing too i think this is where it was coming from with these men like i was actually saying i enjoyed sex i had this experience with this love potion and it didn't work for everyone but it did work for a lot of women and it worked for me 
then, so I wrote about it. And I think the fact that I was saying, yes, I enjoyed this, really got people riled up. Like, I, I think that there's this thing that women should not, women, men should control women, women should enjoy sex. We don't talk about it if we do, unless we're with our girlfriends having some wine or something. I do think there's a danger to it because I know girls who are who are teenagers in their 20s who aren't really sexually, well, they don't know their bodies. You know, mm-hmm. they don't even know how their bodies work. And they've told me this. And I just, yeah, I think that's very dangerous. Yes. You know, and not know when something's wrong or what consent means and all of those things. Yes, like even birth, you know, basic birth control. Right. And then you're putting, you're not, you know, and then if you're teaching girls that they're supposed to get married and have babies, and I mean, it's still, it's still repression. Mm-hmm. And not talking about sex or if you're a woman and you're enjoying it or you just want to talk about your sexuality or whatever it is, it gives you power. But then I think there's a dynamic that people, and I think this goes in the, especially in the South, men and women, are so used to the roles they're supposed to play when somebody is out of the box, they don't really know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. So they try to repress them more. What were you discovering in this process of writing the book about either Southern women or men, or how would you, what were kind of your takeaways? For Sex in the South? Mm -hmm. Well, what you see isn't what you get, that a lot of these people are doing, are, doing all sorts of things and have all these fetishes, but they keep them under wraps. I think that's changed a little. Well, I thought it had changed a little bit. And I think it did change a little during the Obama years. I think there was this window where people were feeling a little more progressive and open. But I think now we may have swung back into the darker ages, maybe handmaiden's still. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure we may be in the handmaiden's still. Um, but I learned that in the South, there's this this theory that you, more or less, I mean, this isn't across the board, but it's, I would say the majority of people feel like that they have to play a certain role and that there's a church on every corner and they're always re- reminded of that they're, you know, down to hell if they sin or if they, you know, have a fetish or if they think outside the norm, even if they're, you know, gay in some communities is, is still kind of taboo. I kind of learned there's this whole secret world and what you see is not what you get as I always thought so when I was growing up in Palm Bluff. And what about your own sexuality? And I don't know if you talk about these things from a personal perspective, but how was that something you struggled with? I mean, I know you had more progressive parents, but because you weren't, because it wasn't something that was talked about kind of in a broader community, how did you handle that as you were learning about sex and your body and all of those things as, a, as, a, as an adolescent? Well, what's interesting about that is that I had girlfriends who were just in high school, especially, who were very wild. And I wasn't. I was always like this kind of geeky straight A or straight A's and B's student and the journal. And like I was focused on a career. And so I was more like listening to their adventures and my adventures didn't come until later my sexual adventures because I was listening to them go through all this drama and I was like uh, I don't think I want that right now and you know my parents did raise me to be a very good girl like you know and so it's ironic that I became this sex writer exploring everyone else's sex life mm-hmm. um, but we weren't really secretive about it I mean you know if I had a boyfriend I had a boyfriend and my parents knew it and my mom more than my dad 
like my mom helped me edit Sex in the South, and my parents actually went with me as I traveled the South interviewing people. They went with me on these adventures. They didn't go with me to the interviews, but we all kind of road tripped together. And my mom helped edit the book. My dad never read it. He couldn't stand to think I had written this book. I don't know why. I guess it's because I was always his little girl. Mm-hmm. I think that was I think that was where that was coming from. But with my mom, she was just like, yes, I edited Sex in the South, even when she was in hospice. And they were talking about what I did and what I had written and all. And this minister actually asked her, oh, you know, were you embarrassed about what your daughter wrote? And because we're back in this Bible Belt universe, and my mom's like, no, I'm not embarrassed by her. I'm totally proud of her. I edited her book. I went all over with her to promote this book. I'm not embarrassed at all, and you shouldn't be either. So even as my mom was dying from lung cancer, she was still defending me and my rights as a, you know, really to be a feminist and talk about sex. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was just lucky that I had the parents I had. Yeah, it sounds like it. Even your sweet dad who was probably horrified. (laughs) He was. I mean, he would tell people I wrote the book and they'd go, oh, and then he was like, oh, have you read? No. And he never did read it. I mean, he never read it. He never picked it. I don't know if he ever even picked it up. He saw it. I mean, he'd never you know, tons of copies lying around my house, and I but he never read it. Yeah. Well, there, there are some p- things I don't need to know about my family members. That's right. I think yeah. that was it. Yeah. And my mom yeah. and I were more best friends. And so, um, especially as I got older and she got older, it, we were a lot more open with each other. Yeah. And I have a sister who's like that with her kids, and, and I really appreciate that about her. Um, they can say and do anything, and, and they're just an open family. So I, I think that's a, a great way to be because then they're not afraid if something goes wrong to go talk to someone about it. Right. So. Yes, because, like, when I was growing up, I had my mom, I had this friend, and her mom told my mom that she was putting a birth control pill in her orange juice every morning because she was fearful that she was going to get pregnant. <laughs> and my mom said, well, you need to set her down and actually talk to Have you talked to her? <laughs> about sex and the option of birth control or if she's even having sex. And she was like, no, no, I could never do that. And my oh. mom said, that's where you're making your mistake. And but, but um, she could secretly drug her. That's right. She secretly drugged her. And who knows if birth control works if you melt it in orange juice? I don't know. <laughs> but that was a Palm Bluff story. And, that you know, it was things like that, like that, that I just started thinking, this is all. I mean, just mother's drugging her daughter because she doesn't want her to have, you know, she may be having sex, but she doesn't know it. So it's kind of that what you see isn't what you get mm-hmm. world that still to this day fascinates me. Well, what about um, the issue of self-worth, self- self-esteem? Because as girls, we are sexualized from a young age. And that when I was young, I remember I moved from North Dakota to South Dakota and I was hanging out with a new group of friends. And these girls at 12 years old were having sex. I was horrified. Then as I got older, you know, 16, 17, however old, you know, all my friends had boyfriends and I never did. And so I thought that sex was the only way I was going to get any kind of attention, right? So it was, it was purely from a self-esteem problem. And is, is that situation that girls deal with, and boys too, but we're going to talk about girls. Is that something you think about and kind of study and write about? Self-esteem and women? Yeah, and just how we can how we can own our sexuality, but not resort to it because 
we're so desperate for love. Yeah, I think that, you know, I never did that. I was always, I was kind of like you. I didn't have a boyfriend, and I just said, okay, that's fine. That's fine. I don't have a boyfriend. And even in college, I didn't really date that much. Um, it was only after I got out of college because I was really hell-bent on getting that journalism degree. That was my, that was like my, you know, Willy Wonka golden ticket. It was, I felt like my journalism degree was going to open up my whole universe for me and not a man. And my mom really instilled in me, like, it's great if you have a boyfriend or you're in a relationship, but that is not the end-all, be-all. You And she always said, and I just told a girl this other day, a, a teenage girl, um, my mom always said, you can get married when you can't do anything else. Kind of like, you know, you can find someone to marry you, but you might not be able to go to that on that trip to Ireland, or you may not be able to go to New York or whatever. So they kind of, my, my mom really raised me to be a very, very fiercely independent woman than not to rely on a man for much of anything, <laughs> and, which is so funny because she and my dad had a great marriage. But I think she saw something in women around her that, and I come from kind of this long line of strong women, and I, she really instilled that in me, that my worth was not wrapped up in a man, you know, that mm-hmm. I could be smart and cute and even sexy, but it's not for the attention of a man. It was for my own, for me, if I want to be, if I want to do that. But that's a rare thing because I see it, I see it in women of all ages, from teenagers to even women, baby boomer women, who are still kind of wrapped up, feeling like that they have to either change themselves to get a man or do something to get, a, you know, attention. The self-worth thing, yes, it's an ongoing it's, I think it's an ongoing battle, even in the Me Too movement and all of this. I think there's still – and I think now we're dealing with a backlash from this Me Too movement where men almost think they – maybe it's Trump. Uh, it, it could be Trump, where men almost feel like they can say anything about a woman or anything to you and you should take it. It's very strange times, I think. It is strange times. I I, I think men are feeling very put upon right now. And – I try to be patient with them, not the ones who are attacking women or threatening them, but, I mean, just men who are uncomfortable and see this world changing around them, you know, or just like white people who are trying to learn about their, you know, the structural inequities and the racism and all of that. So, I mean, it's a hard thing that we're going through right now, but mm-hmm. it's it's going to make it better because I, I feel like, just really anecdotally probably, but I, I do feel like men are starting to get it. And they are, well, you know, I think that sexism hurts men as much as it does women. And I think that this idea of masculinity, uh, it's it's now becoming more fluid. And I think it's surely got to be a relief to a lot of men. That they I think don't so, have to too. Yes. yes, I agree with that. Yes. So, yeah, but no, I agree with you on the, the Me Too stuff. And I don't know, it's a it's a it's exciting, but it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the time we live in. Yes, and I still think that in the South, there's this, there's still this, um, this thing, uh, not with all, not with all of them, but but it depends on, I guess, the way they're raised. That you know, their end goal is to to get married, to get a man, to settle down, have kids. Uh, almost like career is not an option, and I'm like, but it so is an option. You know, whatever you want to do. And so I think it, it could be, this could be more of a Southern thing. That's just the way it's been for so many years. You know, you get married, you have kids, 
And you get divorced, get remarried. And you get divorced, that's right. <laughs> the cycle begins again. Yes, that. It seems to be maybe more prevalent in the South. I don't know that for a fact, but the girls I talk to, it, it seems like they're still like in 1984, 1964. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, I mean, I've lived in Aspen. I've lived in New York. I've I've lived in other places, many other places, and Little Rock is the most pretentious town I've ever lived in. And there definitely is this keeping up with the Joneses, two kids and a dog and the white picket fence. Uh, There is this expectation that that's the way life is supposed to be. Uh, When Drew and I were were getting divorced, I ran into these women. They asked where I was. I said, oh, you know, we're separated. We're getting divorced. And they said, oh, don't worry. You'll find another husband. Oh, yes. I just, I don't want one. You know, I'm good. Thanks. And (laughs) even Jason and I took, we were together for years before we got married again. Because we'd each been married before. And it's like, oh, is it even necessary? But there's this expectation. Oh, there is. There is. And then when I tell people I don't have children, and that was a conscious decision. um, And I'm, you know, I'm 49. I'm not going to have children. But at 29, I didn't want children. I really Mm -hmm. made this decision that I wanted to have a career and travel. And I did travel. I traveled a lot in my 20s and 30s, um, especially. And even in my well, even this decade I have, but not as much because I was taking care of my mom. You know, I just knew that I couldn't be the mom I wanted to be if I was going to. I, I just really didn't believe that a woman could have it all, and mm-hmm. I knew the way I was. And when I'm in something, I'm 150% in. So if I decided to be a mom, I was going to be, like, the best mom ever. So I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that and have this career, so I had to make a choice. And so my choice was I'm going to have a career because I don't think motherhood is – is my thing. And now people say to me, oh, I'm so sorry you don't have kids. And I'm like, well, don't be sorry. It was my decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could have had, you know, I was in relationships. I could have, I could have had a child. And I'm like, well, don't feel sorry for me that they have this look of pity. And I'm like, but I didn't want a child. I right. still don't want a child. And, you know, I've dated people with children. I helped raise some children. I mean, it's not what my, that was not what I wanted my path to be. And it was a decision. It was my conscious decision. And I don't regret it. But what really makes me mad is when women who I know do this whole pity thing on me. And I'm like, but don't feel sorry for me. Right. And then they'll turn around and complain about their children. And I'm like, well, right. then I'm glad I didn't have children. <laughs> right. And and I think, too, that there's, with motherhood, I see a lot of criticism about how we parent. And I do the same thing. I mean, I think that kids are overscheduled. I I wish that we would just give them a break, but I'm not a a parent. And I have gone through the same thing. Oh, well, you could adopt. You could, and they start Mm -hmm. going through the checklist of how I could have kids. I'm like, yes. I'm good. You know, I, it's not, I wanted kids. We didn't have them. That's fine. I'm now glad that I don't have them. Yes. I never, I just never wanted them. I mean, there was never one moment that I said, oh, I want to be a mom. I just mm-hmm. didn't. I don't think I had that maternal gene or something. I mean, I'm very great at caregiving. I'm a great dog parent, but I just, that wasn't my, that just wasn't something I wanted. That was on a path I wanted to go down and I, I didn't go down it. And that's fine. I'm glad I, I mean, it was my, no one made that decision but me. That was my decision. More and more people lately, it seems, oh, I'm so sorry, because I think it's because my mom has passed away. And But I'm fine. I'm an independent woman. My parents raised me to be very independent and a businesswoman. So Stevie Nicks has this great quote that like, if you want to be an artist and a rock and roll star, you have to kind of give up being the PTA mom. And I kind of want because Stevie Nicks is kind of my spirit animal or whatever. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I mean, sometimes you've got to make the decision you want, you need for you depending on the life you, you want to live, you love. Right. 
and the goal in, in this short life that we have should be that it, it be fulfilling. Exactly. Yeah. And for every woman out there who might be listening who loves being a mom, I am so happy for them. It's just not my thing. That's mine. I am so happy for all my friends who have kids, and I love their kids that I go and hang out with and, you know, take them for coffee and listen to their, you know, all their problems and all the things they can't tell their parents but want to tell their parents. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that I can be a sounding board, like the friend that they feel like they can confide in. And it's hard being a parent. I mean, my friends who are parents have, you know, they go through quite a bit. Um, are all the moms out there, but yes, that was not for me. Yeah, I would I would just like to reach the point. I mean, even with Women Lead Arkansas, I just want women to be able to do what they want to do. There's no right or wrong way to be a woman, in my opinion. We should be allowed the same freedoms that men get because they get to do everything they want to do. I agree with that so much, 100, 200 percent. Yeah, yes. And if they want to talk about sex, that's fine. Mm-hmm. A woman starts talking about sex and then it becomes this big brouhaha. Because people are still embarrassed. I mean, like, if I have still have a book signing about sex in the South, the people are still embarrassed. They're embarrassed by the – I mean, not embarrassed. Well, I think they are a little embarrassed, like a little shy about the cover because the cover's a little racy and, and the first sentence of the book is just right in your face. And I just think people go, huh, what is this? And I'm like, well, it's my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, the, you know, it's the truth. And I'm not embarrassed by it at all. Yeah, uh, and you shouldn't be. So tell me about the Dr. Phil show. Well, in 2000, I want to say it was 2007, 2008, they had a couple of producers that worked on that show who were from the South, and they remembered Sex and the South coming out. And they were doing a uh, a show on suburban sex secrets and one of the topics was swinging and they they reached out to me and asked if I would come on to talk about bedroom secrets of the south especially swinging so uh they flew me out to LA and I was on the Dr. Phil show for like all of maybe five minutes what was that experience like being on the show was not bad behind the scenes they made me sign a confidentiality agreement so I'm assuming that's still in play he was uh, but he was very egotistical I will have to say yeah. And I had been on those kind of shows before, different shows. Usually, and usually the host comes back and like at least says hello to you before you go out. They at least meet you for like two seconds. And he did not. They served me this cold turkey deli sandwich that was horrid. So it wasn't glamorous at all. Not that I expected like a 10 course meal or anything, but I wasn't exactly expecting like a cold turkey sandwich and like a styrofoam little <laughs> container. They did have a car that picked me up and took me there and took me back to my hotel. But the show itself, well, people were very in love with Dr. Phil. And then when he he came here to the Clinton School, and I tried to get some time with him, um, and, you know, I thought since I had been on a show, maybe I could get like a five-minute interview or something with him, and no. So egotistical would be one word I would use to describe him. That doesn't surprise me. He he comes (laughs) off as exactly the way he comes off on TV. Yes. Yeah, yes. just a very kind of man's man. He knows everything. Yes. We're just here to take it all in. Yes, yeah. and I think I was there just because those women from the South wanted me on that show. I think that's mm-hmm. how I got on it. I don't think he wanted me necessarily. I think they wanted me. Right. So did you get any um, good response or, or any what kind of response did you get from being on the show? Yeah, a lot of people saw it. I sold a lot of books. And then my publisher ripped me off financially of all those sales oh and said I made, I made no sales on that. And I had to get a lawyer and threatened to sue and 
um, I did get my rights back. So I have all the rights now for Sex in the South, and I have all the remaining copies. Hopefully this year it finally goes on as an ebook. I just have to format it and because oh. uh, there's been a demand for that. And I haven't done that. Mm-hmm. So um, the response, though, from Dr. Phil was fantastic. The way my publisher handled it, not so fantastic. Yeah. So was it a, a local or out-of-state publisher? It was an out-of-state publisher in Boston. Have you thought about doing an update? Because now, what is that, 15 Yeah, it's about 15 ago? years. Yeah. Yes, people want me to do an update, and, and they want me to keep writing about this. And to that, I say, I'm not sure. I, w- I went into that book totally wide-eyed and kind of innocent in a way at times. Like some of the stuff in the book, like I went undercover um, to a bondage club in Alabama and that was eye-opening beyond, you know, it's beyond. And I went to Platinum Plus in Memphis, the strip club that was really basically porn on the stage. So I don't know if I could ever be that innocent again, that wide-eyed, innocent, what, what's going on? Although I probably could. I mean, there's probably stuff out there. I know people think, you know, that I've heard everything and, and seen everything, which because I've had people tell me that, oh, yes, you know, you probably hang from the chandelier. And I'm like, <laughs> well, no, I don't. And <laughs> But I may have heard about everything. But I figured that I probably haven't. So last year I went to a book club. Uh, I, I do book clubs. Women invite me and I go and have one and talk about sex in the South. And they really were like – encouraging me to do another Sex in the South. And it's just never quite come together like how I should do it because Mm -hmm. that one just, you know, getting in trouble with the Niagara and all that kind of just set the stage. I mean, to me, you should wear that as a badge of honor. Oh, I do wear it. Oh, yes. I do wear it with a badge of honor. Yes. Sex in the South is definitely a badge of honor. I love the book. The book got in. The book is me, and I, I guess I'm the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. But when you say get in trouble, you don't have any regrets about that. Oh, no, I have zero regrets about getting in trouble. Okay. I just think getting in trouble kind of set the stage. Like, oh, my God, I'm in trouble with this. No, I wear the total – the fact that ATN has never invited me back, I totally wear with a badge of honor. I mean, how many people have been banned for a de- more than a decade from a show? Um no, I wear all of that with a badge of honor. I am not embarrassed by it. I'm very proud of it. I, I feel like it's a very feminist girl mm-hmm. power kind of thing. I just think that that kind of set the stage for the perfect opening of Sex in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to find another thing like that that woos me enough to say, okay, I've got a whole book here. Right. Because, and I also had written that story about the sex toy parties and where the women were saying they were at Bible study, right? But there's probably plenty of other stuff out there like that now. I'm pretty sure there is. I hear a podcast. I think you could do it. I think you could talk to all kinds of people. I think that would be really interesting. Um, Yes, other people have, yes, people have also told me I should do a podcast. Yes, I've had that said many, many times in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, you could have guys' voices. I mean, I think that there could be a really interesting show there. Um, People who want to get things off their chest or admit something um, that they would never do publicly. And that's what happened with Sex in the South. After it came out, and people still kind of do this, but not as much, but... Um, they do if I have a book signing sometimes. Um, it's almost like I'm a like some sort of priestess or something where mm-hmm. they're coming and confessing stuff to me or, you know, running things past me. And so there is that aspect to it. Yes. A couple of things. I want to talk about Violet, Violet Clementine. <laughs> and then 
I want to wrap up by asking why this is important. So the erotica series. Yes, the erotica series I wrote on a whim. Um, well, what's the format? Are they books? They're ebooks. Okay. They're all available on Amazon, and I'm working on the last series. I was working on the last installment when my mom got sick, and it just kind of, you know, I had to take, I took care of her at home with the help of hospice. And then when she passed away, it kind of took a, a little while to get back on my feet. I traveled to South Carolina, did some uh, freelance writing, some medical freelance writing for a company. And then um, but Violent Clementine was one of the things. My mom kind of had this list of things she wanted me to accomplish, and finishing Violent Clementine was one of them. So um, I'm working, um, trying to work on the last installment. And they're short. They're very short. It was an experiment to see if people's attention spans were short and wanted just little small stories, not a whole book at once. And so the first installment, I think it's around 20,000 words, maybe, maybe 18,000. And the Valent Clementine, I didn't set out really to write erotica, but a friend of mine, uh, we were at dinner and she was talking about Fifty Shades of Grey and all these books that she read that were just ebooks that she would download that were pretty much erotica. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I think you could write something like that. And I said, no, I don't know. Because the thing about Sex and the South is that it's, it's stranger than fiction. You know, it's all true. You could make the stuff up because it's some, some of it is so weird. She said, oh, but I think, I think you could do this. And I said, well, I'll ponder it. Well, I have a thyroid condition. I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and it goes from hypothyroidism to hyper. And when it's hyper, you don't sleep, and you're over-medicated, basically. Mm-hmm. And so weird enough, soon after my friend told me that I should do this, I was over-medicated, and I couldn't sleep at night. And it was almost like I was in some sort of trance, because I was trying to sleep but couldn't, and this character popped into my head. And I honestly have never had this happen because I had previously, I previously wrote a novel called Echo Ellis, Adventures of a Girl Reporter. And this is all about a reporter who travels and you know, tries to find the next hot story mm-hmm. and gets in all sorts of capers. She came slowly to me, and she's kind of based on me a little bit. But Violet was her own person, and I had heard about writers who really do this when they, you know, the character will disappear, and they have to write it. And that's what happened with Violet. She just popped into my head, and she had all these sexual stories. And I was too kind of exhausted to get up and actually write them all down of what was coming in my, you know, what was happening in my head. So I was like, well, I'll go to sleep. If it's still there in the morning, then I'll ponder it. And when I did woke up. It was all still there. So I wrote it all out in longhand on this blank piece of paper, just scribbling with a Sharpie. And pretty soon I had our whole story mapped out. It was the weirdest thing. And then I decided to just do them as e-books to see if people would download them. And that's kind of how that project. And it's racy. It's very racy. How are you promoting it? I haven't promoted it very much. I promoted it um, when it first came out. The series came out initially in throughout 2016 and then it just kind of fell flat because of my mom's illness and then me kind of picking up the pieces of of losing her and so um i mostly promoted it through social media so you publish it on amazon i did and strictly as an ebook yeah right and then do they do they do anything to promote or is it just there and it's up to you to do the work yeah it's mostly it's there 
and you do the work. Okay. Well, do they just take a cut, or do you pay to be on the platform? Yeah, they they take a cut, cut very much like an agent or a publisher. Yeah, but the cut is better through Amazon than if you had an agent and a publisher. Right. If you have an agent and a publisher, you're not going to get much in the end. Right. Okay. So, so you're working on the last installment for that, mm-hmm. or you plan to? Yes. It's and what it's, else? It's it's, uh, it's brewing. <laughs> it's percolating. Right. What else are you working on right now? Um, I have a collection of essays that are, some are new and some are older essays that have been published on various websites that are now defunct. I'm working on compiling a collection of essays. There's probably two or three new ones in there. And that's called Sex and Sassiness, Sex, Sassiness, that kind of thing. And I hope to have that out in early April. Okay. And yeah. you'll also, that will be a book of essays? That will be a book of essays and a download. Yes. Okay. On, okay. on Amazon. Yeah. Tell me how everyone can find you. Well, they can find me on uh, Facebook, Susie Parker, S-U-Z-I-P-A-R-K-E-R. Okay. I'm on Twitter at, at Susie Parker, S-U-Z-I-P-A-R-K-E-R. I love Twitter more than Facebook. I love Twitter. And then I have an Amazon page. And I'm working on revisiting, revising my website. This okay. is kind of a year to like relaunch everything after coming out of um, the mom drama, as I like to call it. Right, right. And uh, so, so I'm trying to finish all those projects that she laid out for me to to finish before she died. Back to my question. Um, oh, and I'm going to be. Oh, I forgot. I'm in April. Well, I'm not sure of the date. It's late April, but I'm going to be at the Arkansas Times Pub or Parish event reading. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, yes, I'll and I'm good. That, and I will be reading from that new collection of essays. So, big picture, why is all of this important? All of this is important. Well, I think for to empower women to talk about sex, to feel like they can write about sex, to be themselves, to choose their own path, um, find their own magic. That's always what I'm trying to to instill. Not just in men, not just in women, but also in men, but especially women to feel strong and confident and do do what their destiny, they feel like their destiny is. Not to conform, to think outside the box. Because Sex and the Seth is a very much think outside the box book. But I was raised to kind of think outside the box. So, it's, so it kind of was my destiny, I think. Right. And you, I really like to empower women, like do what you want to do. If you want to do art, do art. If you want to write books, write books. If, you know, you want to be a lawyer, be a lawyer. If you want, don't, don't let anyone limit you on your possibilities or tell you you can't do something. Yeah, and, and I think something that people don't realize is that, that what's the worst that can happen? Exactly, yes. You, you know, you fall seven times, you get up on eight times. You know, you get up. You, that's what my mom always, she instilled on in me very early on that, you know, if you, if you fail or you just, you, you make a bad grade or whatever happens, you, you, you can have a pity party for like a couple hours. That's about the limit. And then you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps by the next morning and get going again. You can't stay down. She she instilled that in me even as she was dying. And so um, that's why I know I have to finish all these projects that she wanted me to finish and not really get derailed on them. Um, that, yes, the worst that can happen is that you may not hit your goal, you may not hit your mark the first time, but, you know, anything is better than nothing. Yeah, and if, it, you know, the naysayers, maybe they're not meant to be in your life. 
So that's exactly it. I've had so when I first started freelancing, I had so many friends tell me, "You're crazy. I can't. You will never be able to freelance out of Little Rock, Arkansas. You are crazy." They really thought I had lost my mind, and they were very negative about it. And I said, "Oh, watch me, because I just take something like that as a challenge." And I landed in the New York Times Magazine, then I landed in The Economist, and I landed in the Christian Science Monitor and Town and Country, and it just, you know, it just, I just kept going. I never, I never backed down. I never said, oh, you know, yeah, you're right, I'm just going to give up. No. I was kind of trying to prove that if I decided to stay in Little Rock, which I did, that I was going to take it, you know, as far as I could take it. Right. Yeah. So. If, if there's something someone wants me to do, they should tell me that I can't do it. <laughs> That's exactly it. Tell me I can't do it and I will do it. Yes. Right. And I'll be scaring yes. you off the whole time. And I forgot to mention that I'm also teaching writing workshops this year. Oh, and um, I have a space downtown, and I'm doing them um, in the space. And the Facebook page for that is Susie's Writing Funhouse is what it's called. Susie's Writing Sunhouse, okay. Uh huh. Um, and that's just for people who are interested in improving their writing skills, getting started it can be, at all levels. It, it's all levels. It can be improve your writing skills. You've got a bunch of scraps laying around. What am I supposed to do with these? It's create creativity. I just want to be creative and try to write a story. Uh, there's going to be an erotica writing workshop in there. I was trying to get one done. I was trying to do that one before Valentine's, but my schedule got kind of crazy. So, mm-hmm. um, but there is going to be an erotica one too, so that women can like kind of unleash their inner sex goddess, is how I like to call it. Okay, good. Well, I might. Have I to... think I think that's some repression there that women want to kind of release their inner sex goddess, and they don't know how. Well, because we've never been allowed to. That's it. They're not allowed to. That's it. Yes. There's yeah. yes. And they there's can't, a double they, standard. You know, men are allowed to have sex as much as they want, and we are not because it ruins us, right? That's and right. It, it makes us less virtuous and less worthy and all of those things. So why would we why would we do that? Even though we do. Women have sex. Exactly. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I could go on and on about that. But I, can, um, I know. I, can, I know a whole other book about that. But there is going to be like an erotica writing workshop. Yeah. Cool, cool. I am not a good storyteller, so I might have to join the workshop or a workshop. Oh, yeah. To, to work on story structure because I just have no idea. Yeah, there's going to be one, I think, on storytelling because that's one thing that people keep – they keep messaging me about storytelling. Weird enough. I mean – not only writing, but like, how do you tell a story? And I'm like, oh, maybe there's a, I was talking to a friend the other day who had taken one of my workshops back, I had some last fall, and things I take for granted that I know how to do, I realize they, that other people may not know how to do it. Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of like cooking. You know, like shelves probably assume everybody knows what to do with a uh, cabbage, and I so don't. <laughs> Right. Well, it's just, you know, I know a good book when I read it, but that doesn't make me a good author. I, I know a great meal when I eat it, but I don't know how to cook it, you know? And yes. So, yeah. I mean, I think we can recognize great writing, but, but to actually sit down and do it, I think is very difficult. And, and again, like with this story, it's not a whodunit. It's not, you know, it doesn't have that kind of lesson of the three or making a murder kind of hook. So I need to write it in a way that's compelling that keeps people listening, you know, but I just, I don't even know where to start on that. I think that's a great opportunity. And there's, and, and last thing I'll say about the storytelling is that there is in sort of the marketing world right now, the focus is really on storytelling. It's not, 
here's why you should buy my product. It's finding a pain point and telling people how you can help them. I'm not articulating that well, but it's really about telling a story so that people can connect on an emotional level. Yeah. I'm doing some medical writing on the side, and this isn't really for the podcast, but I'm doing some some medical writing for a for a company, and that's what their thing is. Tell this story, like mm-hmm. take this and tell a story to make it compelling. And I realized people don't know how to really tell that story. I mean, I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that, but other people, yes, other mm-hmm. people don't know how to do that. And I guess that's just my. I mean, I guess I've just been doing this so long that it's that's right. It's, it's in the, and yeah, I can do it in my sleep or in a coma. Yes, I'm I'm the boring journalistic like the um you know the the pyramid the reverse pyramid right yeah yeah I am very succinct and like here's the information now go so yeah well appreciate you talking to me yes this is great it's, and we should go for drinks sometime yes we should yes we definitely need to do that I would love yeah. that yeah because we haven't covered the half of it no we haven't so we need to like have some wine and do that I'll talk to you soon I appreciate it okay thank okay. you so much okay bye bye bye.